There are no breaks in this business. You make your breaks. The reason I'm in this room right now is because my music's very dope. Let's try to find something that people remember 20 years later. If you just truly love cinema with enough passion, then you can't help but make a good movie. Break rules. Leave the world more interesting for your being here. Make good art. Welcome to Artwell. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly, and today is the season one finale. And the idea for what this last episode of the season is going to look like has kind of shaped and molded over the course of creating this season of the show on Salvador Dali. Originally, what I was going to do is I was going to write a couple essays, which I have done. I've written those essays in there in this episode. But I was originally going to just share the essays as individual uploads over two weeks. And that was kind of going to mark the end of the season. But to me, that felt like it didn't necessarily have a sense of finality. That was just, there was just no real, again, like there's other way to put that. Like it just didn't feel like there was a proper conclusion. And so I was like, well, then I should probably record like a recap or something at the end of the season to really just mark that season one is over. And I was like, well, I can just like talk for 10, 15 minutes about some of the learnings from doing this first season of the show, both from Dolly, but also just from the process of actually making the show. I was like, well, that's kind of cool. But there's just, again, that doesn't feel as grand or as final as I want it to be. And I was like, well, what if I share in this final episode condensed versions of the interviews? Because what I do for context for you is on my YouTube channel, which you can subscribe to in the description, is I cut down the interviews. I don't share the full interviews anywhere but the podcast. And so on YouTube, I cut them down and I turn them essentially into video essays using the footage of my guest answers. And so I'll be talking and I'll be giving a level of context and then it'll cut from me to the guests and the guests answer. And then they'll start riffing from the point I was making. And we kind of jockey back and forth. And I try to make it more of an experience for YouTube. So there's music, there's overlaid footage and B-roll and things like that. As opposed to just sharing a full hour, 90 minute interview. And so I was like, well, I could put the audio from that in here. And then I could kind of give you, if you haven't listened to all the interviews yet, you can kind of taste each of the interviews. If you have listened to the interviews, you get a little bit of a different experience. You get my context on the importance of certain elements of the interviews. I was like, that's kind of cool. So I like that idea of putting those in here. And then I was still thinking about these essays. And, uh, you know, I could share the essays, but then I realized, you know, I don't necessarily like the idea of sharing like an eight minute podcast or a 10 minute podcast. For me, like I see other shows do that. And it's just not something I've ever downloaded. I have no interest in downloading a seven-minute podcast. And so I was like, well, maybe I could put the essays that I, I wrote in this episode as well. So now with this season finale episode, it really becomes a full experience. I'm taking all these little pieces I wanted to do and I'm putting them into one thing for you. So you really get more out of this episode than just a small essay or just me riffing for a little bit about the season. You get a little bit of everything. It becomes a more total, like the totality of the experience becomes greater. And so what I'm doing with this episode here now is you're getting a deep dive on a couple lessons that I took away from over the course of making this season. And then you're getting some different experiences or some first tastes of the interviews that happened this season. And when I came to that realization, I was like, oh, this is the best way to conclude the season. Uh, it's a proper recap. It's a proper finale to the season. You get a little bit of everything that kind of, we touch on everything that we've already touched on, but in a way that's not repeating it. Everything you're going to hear today is going to be a different experience than if you listen to the Salvador Dali profile versus if you listened to my interview with Nicola Deschamps or with Jack Bond or Christopher Heath Brown. So nothing here is actually a repeat in the true sense of the word. Like it has all been 
shaped and molded and has changed. So I was really excited by that idea as I let that be the season finale as a proper marking of the end of season one of the show. And it's interesting, right? Because I'm right now at the time of recording this, this finale, I am uploading it in two days. It's a Saturday. I'm uploading this on Monday. And I've been so kind of getting into season two production already that like the Salvador Dali season almost feels like it's in the past now, even though it's still currently happening for me. And so it's been kind of fun to jump back in to put all of this together for you. And I have a couple of essays that I've written. And the first one was originally the first idea I ever had for an essay I really liked was on art and commercialism. And it's one of the first ideas, I think was the first idea I wrote down because when I was going through Salvador Dali's Wikipedia page, I realized that's where I first learned that he got a lot of flack for his commercial focus. And I feel like I'm someone who often tries to not necessarily, I don't demonize the commercial. I think you have to, I think the notion of a starving artist is silly, but I also, like, I, I also love the idea of a pure artist. But then I realized when I was going through Salvador Dali's Wikipedia page and they were listing people who had critiqued him for his commercial focus. I was like, I don't know who any of these people are. And so the idea was exploring art and commercialism, trying to understand if commercialism is so bad, why is Salvador Dali the most remembered person of all the people who critiqued him? But that was really all I had. I didn't have like a lot of my own solid thoughts on the idea. And I mean, obviously, if I'd spent time to, for it to come together, I, I probably could have come up with something. But I also don't want to, like I had so many different essay ideas. I could have been still writing them for, for months. But I just want to do two for the sake of one to two each season because I don't think there's a point in doing so many. But anyways, I originally wanted to write this essay on art commercialism. And the other original idea that I had was to write about crazy versus genius. Because one of the early interviews of Salvador Dali's that I read, which was definitely the best interview I read of his throughout the totality of this, the research of this season, was his interview with Playboy in 1964. There's a few good quotes in there that I really liked, but there was one section where he outlines his thoughts on crazy versus genius. And to me, I was like, oh, this, it was, just, it was like an unlock of my brain where I was like, oh, like it was, it was that experience I feel like I chase when I'm doing the research. I'm looking for puzzle pieces to click together in a way they haven't before. And that was one of those moments. I was like, well, I have to write about this idea of crazy versus genius because Salvador Dali himself was also crazy, but he was also a genius. And so how, what's the difference between those things? Where does Dali fall on that spectrum? And I also had to the, uh, this idea of Dali was known for his dual images. You know, he, where you could look at the image and see multiple different things, which like we talked about in the profile episodes, I was like, oh, I could talk, I could like kind of use that as a way in of like, Dolly does these dual images where depending on the way you look at it, you see something different. But Dolly himself with his personality, he was doing like a dual, like not a dual personality, but his personality could look at from different perspectives and people could see different things. So he was actually turning his life into the art. And I ultimately actually like removed that section from the essay. Because it never, it didn't fit properly, I don't think. But I knew I wanted to write about Crazy versus Genius. I had these like kind of ideas, but was, I didn't know what my full point was, what the argument was that I was going to be making, what the what the thesis was of this essay. And then I interviewed Nicolas Deschamps, who reframed Dali's paranoiac critical method for me in a big way. And. I really wanted to make something about this because I was like, well, this is like a fully new way of understanding the paranoia critical method. I want to share this. And so I, but I wasn't sure exactly how. And then I, but that idea of the reframed paranoia critical method has stuck with me. And there was a, a day in the middle of the season where 
my girlfriend was out of town and I decided I was going to go take myself for a little solo, little solo artist date. And so I took myself for pizza. There's this local spot here in Toronto that's really popular that I've wanted to go to since I moved here over a year ago and I never have. And I was like, you know, I'm going to go. It was a Sunday night. I went out, I walked over to this place. It was like this small little spot. I ended up eating outside by myself on the patio in a jacket. It wasn't necessarily warm out and ate my pizza and I was just kind of hanging out. And then I was walking home and I was thinking about the Nicolas Deschamps interview because I was trying to figure out what do I do for the YouTube version? Like what section of the interview do I cut down for the video? And I really wanted to do something around the paranoia critical method because I really liked how he reframed it. But I was like, I don't know if there's enough there to turn it into a video. Like I need a substantive part of the interview where I can like really go back and forth and pull apart their answers and reorganize them in a way that just creates this cool flow. But I was like, but with the paranoia critical method, we really only talked about it for like a second. So there's not enough there for it to be an actual video, but I really liked what he was doing. And then out of nowhere, I remember exactly where I was. I was walking through Trinity Bellwoods Park towards Queen Street and it just hit me out of nowhere that I should take this paranoiac critical method and I should marry it with this idea of crazy versus genius and use the paranoiac critical method as a way to kind of walk us through this idea of crazy versus genius and whether Dolly was crazy or genius and his definition and it all just came together and I ran home and I was because I was so excited about the idea I was originally planning to just hang out because I've been working all day and I was like I'm just gonna relax when I get home I got home I grabbed my laptop and I just wrote for an hour and a half until I went to bed and I was like oh this like it really came together and then I had to step away from the essay for a couple weeks because I was working on some other stuff for the season and I came back to it I, I looked at it again I reorganized it I wrote a new section I realized that section kind of took away from the core argument so I took out the new section I spent time writing I rewrote the whole thing like edited the whole thing and then I finished it and then, but it really just came like this bolt of light. And like, I would say 70% of this essay was just written that night when it just hit me in the face of how to do this essay and what the argument was and how the paranoid critical method and the reframing of the paranoid critical method fits into this essay. So I was really glad that I was able to create something that explains this new interpretation of Dolly's creative process while also arguing on the difference of crazy versus genius. And so that's the first essay we're going to share today that I'm excited for you to hear on asking the question, who made art history, crazy people or geniuses? Crazy is a term often used to describe some of the greatest artists in history. Staunch supporters of the artist will rush to their defense with the usual rebuttal, they're not crazy, they're a genius. There's no better example of an artist who straddled this crazy genius line more than the great surrealist painter Salvador Dali. So many times, Dali is almost crazy. But the only difference between one crazy people and Dali is Dali is not crazy. Known in equal parts for his magically disturbing imagery as for his theatrics in the media, some regard him as a genius painter capable of moving in and out of disciplines with equal impact, who carefully crafted a persona that media would love to enable him to reach as many people as possible. 
while at the same time others view him as an egotistical self-aggrandizing maniac who would do whatever he had to for his own personal benefit regardless of how it impacted others. No matter what your opinion of Dali is, we can all agree he was a bit of a weird guy whose paintings were even weirder. His aim was to dig deep into his subconscious and capture the deepest recesses of his soul on the canvas with as much detail as possible, and according to him, he was able to do this through a process he invented called the Paranoiac Critical Method. The only issue with the Paranoiac Critical Method is that it could only be performed by Salvador Dali. Despite his best efforts to encourage other surrealist artists of the time to adopt his practice, no one could actually figure out how to do it, and the reason for that is because there isn't actually a way to do it. When performing the paranoiac critical method, Dali claimed he would just lull himself into a paranoid state and use it as a source of creative fuel. To be honest with you, it's unlikely that Dali was actually driving himself crazy for the sake of his art. But that doesn't mean that the paranoiac critical method doesn't exist. In a recent interview with Artwell, world-renowned Dali expert Nicolas Descharnes provides a reframe of the paranoiac critical method. It was even difficult for him to give a clear and simple definition, which I did later on because of my maturity and everything. Now, it, this is my opinion. So for me, the, the, the critical uh, paranoiac method was, it's like you register everything that happened, then you, you try to link them and it generates the creation. So the association is irrational, but the way he put it on the canvas, he make it rational to be able to, to explain, to, to show that to the people. What Nicolas is saying here is that the paranoiac critical method was actually an intellectual and creative exercise. Dali's method was to actively try and create links between unrelated events and objects in his life to see what his mind could come up with. When he would find a link, he would then paint an image that he thought represented that link. If you want proof that Nicolas' interpretation of the paranoia critical method is correct, look no further than Salvador himself. In the early 1930s, when he was inventing the method, Dali wrote this in a surrealist publication. I believe that the moment is at hand when by harnessing the paranoiac and active component of our thinking processes, it will be possible to systematize confusion and contribute to the total discrediting of the world of reality. To Dali, paranoid people see the world in a way no one else does because they unintentionally connect different events in their life and draw conclusions no one else will. But because there's no rational link between these disparate life events, it requires a certain type of creativity and the suspension or discrediting of reality to find a connection. Dali wanted to tap into this creativity that was only reserved for those who are crazy, and he did so through the paranoiac critical method. He wasn't actually entering a state of paranoia, he was just replicating a paranoid thought pattern by intentionally, or in other words, by using the active component of his thinking process to link unrelated events in his own life. In doing so, he would create a different reality for himself and see the world in his own unique way, which would lead to the creation of images unlike anyone else. In a 1964 interview, Dali explained how this thought process allows him to see the world differently, saying, I'm not actually crazy. A psychiatrist in Paris worked for seven years to determine whether Dali is crazy or not. After many conversations, he decided that Dali possesses one of the best organized brains he had ever encountered. He said that my brain contains the characteristics of paranoiac delusion structure. But paranoiac delusion, of course, is absolutely creative, the best kind of crazy. The whole difference between a crazy man and Dali is that Dali is not pathological. But even in true pathologic paranoiac delirium, there exists some contact with reality. For instance, a good example of pathologic delirium, a man feels that his family is against him and they want to poison his food. 
He begins to look around very closely at his family and discovers many things about them that are absolutely true. His fundamental assumption, of course, is wrong. Nobody wants to kill him. This is delirium and is crazy. But from this obsessional idea comes a marvelous quantity of perceptions of truth. He discovers many real things, thousands of insights and relationships that are unavailable to the average person that usual people never perceive. Because I have this power of discernment, I discover things that other people could not possibly suspect exist. We use crazy as a catch-all term for someone who doesn't see the world the same way as we do. The problem with that is that geniuses become geniuses because they don't see the world the same way as we do. It's easy to write someone off as crazy when we first come across them, and then only later when we start to see the world their way do we recognize their brilliance. Therefore, if you see the world differently, the burden of proof falls on you to show the rest of the world that you're right. No matter what the field is, whether it's science, mathematics, art, you become a genius by being the first person to prove something new about the world. To quote Dali once again, this time explaining the difference between craziness and genius, he said, Look at the mouth of the girl in that painting on the wall, and at this lamp on the table, and at your hand on the recording machine. Most people see no connection between these things, but Dali, on the contrary, establishes immediately a complete system of interpretation relating these objects. The difference between Dali's paranoiac delusion and the other kinds of craziness is his ability to communicate his visions of delirium to other people. This is the ability to see clearly, which is the basis of every artist. The clearest such vision was that of Leonardo da Vinci, who could create, for example, an entire battle scene just by looking at random water spots on a damp wall, sometimes for an hour or more. This is the true paranoiac phenomenon, because if you can see something in this way, it is possible for you to tell other people, this is the nose of a man, for example, and they will see it exactly the same way as you. And the other kind of crazy it is the contrary. You may have a vision or a dream, but after it passes, you cannot communicate it to other people because it is not systematic or organized. The most important thing in my life is the ability to organize systematically the most complex elements of my environment to create a cosmo. In simple terms, both crazy people and geniuses see the world differently, but it takes a genius to be able to explain how they see the world in such a way that it makes sense to others. The act of being able to distill how you see the world isn't important so people don't think you're crazy. It's important because by doing so, you become the shoulders of giants that people stand on. Geniuses move the world forward, but they're not able to do that unless other people are able to build upon their work. To be a genius, it's not enough to be able to come up with a theory that only three men in the world can understand. To be a genius, you have to be able to come up with that theory and then explain it so clearly that anyone with a high school education and a reasonable degree of intelligence can understand. Now, if someone is a genius and is able to move the world forward, that doesn't mean they're no longer crazy. When someone sees the world differently, it's never just in one way. They might create something that alters the course of humanity, but that doesn't mean they'll no longer do things you think are weird. Michelangelo didn't bathe. Einstein refused to wear socks. Beethoven poured water all over himself to stimulate creativity. Tesla did toe curls to boost his brain cells, and Dolly believed he was the reincarnation of his dead brother. Just because you become a genius doesn't mean you stop being crazy. The truth is asking whether or not someone is crazy or a genius is a trick question, because you're crazy until you're a genius, and then you're both. If you see things differently, everyone will call you crazy until you prove yourself right, at which point you become a genius. The tricky part isn't finding new ways to see the world, it's convincing the rest of the world to see things your way. Who made world history? Not the most reasonable people, the madmen did. I've been in love with that quote ever since I heard it. It's said by Max Ernst, who's a fellow surrealist of Salvador Dali's, 
And I first heard it when I was watching the Arena documentary about Salvador Dali. But the actual source of the quote is from a BBC interview with Max Ernst in the 1960s. I think 1961. Maybe I could be wrong about that. But I remember as soon as I heard it, I was like, that is great. And I knew I was going to find some way to get it into this season of the show. And it's just the perfect end note for the article or the essay on crazy versus genius. And truthfully, because I heard that quote before I wrote the essay, like it was something that was on my mind as I wrote the essay that the point he's making there is very much in line with the point I'm making in the essay. And so I just absolutely, again, I love that quote ever since I heard it. And that's, I guess, one thing I will say, you're, the, the little bit of context you miss when not watching these on YouTube or reading the essays from the newsletter is you don't necessarily know who the quotes are attributable to. Because what I like to do when I'm writing an essay is find quotes from other people, other artists, or things like that, that add a level of context, another layer, or just kind of reiterate the point I'm making from various different sources. And that one, it was Nicolas Deschardins, and there was Max Ernst, and the other one in there was Howard Bloom, actually from an interview I did on this podcast, you can go listen to. And Howard Bloom was the publicist for Michael Jackson, Prince, Bob Marley, amongst other people. And so I like to pull these quotes from different sources. So that is the one thing I will say is you won't necessarily know who all of the people are in the quotes, but if you want to hear them, you can check out the YouTube video. You can subscribe to the newsletter. You can just go read the essays on my Substack, um, which is linked in the description. You don't have to subscribe, but you can see where all the quotes are attributable to. And then you can even link off and go and watch the full interview and get the full context. But that's the one thing I will say, I guess you're missing when listening to this, but I don't think it ruins the experience that much. The next essay was again, supposed to be art versus commercialism, but the point was never fully formed, but there was something else that sat on my mind for a while. Cause I originally actually, I came to a point where I was like, I think the crazy versus genius essay is good. And I'm just going to leave it at that. I feel like that's a good kind of like final point to the season. And then there was one thing that had been sitting on my mind throughout the course of this season. It was when I was interviewing Nicolas Deschamps. And near the end of the interview, he said this. For me to, uh, to uh, integrate the old work of the great master or even before, it's because you continue the work, the message, you know? And that was another one of those moments where all the puzzle pieces just clicked together in a way they never had before. It was that moment I chase where I'm like, oh, like where you just see the world in a different way. And for me, it's like, well, you have to, I, I, I just knew studying the past was important because there's lessons you could learn. And that was like why I thought you should study the past, but it never clicked in my head that it was to continue on the mission. And so the idea of the reason to study the past is to pick up where those who came before you left off was a huge like breakthrough for me. It had been sitting on my mind ever since. And then I eventually came to the conclusion that, oh, I have to write about this. That's what the second essay is going to be about. It's not about art versus commercialism. I'm not not writing an essay. I'm writing an essay about this. And I didn't even know exactly what I wanted to write about. Like I had that one, I could say in two sentences, even one, the reason to study the past is not to recreate what they have done, but it is to pick up the torch and blaze a new trail. And I like knew that I was like, that's kind of like, that's it. It's to just pick up the mission, pick up where they left off and keep going. And so it's like, I had this like very succinct, that that was the breakthrough moment that, but I had to turn that into an essay somehow. And I remember the first day I wrote it, I tried to write it on my laptop 
and I wrote the intro and I deleted the intro and I wrote the intro and I deleted the intro and I wrote the intro and I deleted the intro and then I skipped the intro and I tried to write something else and I deleted that. And I sat upstairs for like over an hour and I just couldn't get anywhere. Like I couldn't get any headway into this essay. After over an hour, I was staring at a blank page still. So I made the calls, you know, I'm just going to go, I changed the location. I went somewhere else, not in my apartment, not in my house, I should say, somewhere else within my building that I could just hang out in. And I tried to write the essay on my phone to try and reduce friction, to make it feel like a bit more of a casual setting. And I wrote like 700 words on this idea and it wasn't very good. You know, I was in that point where I was... I like hit that point where it's like in the process where I was like, this sucks. This is terrible. Why did I try? Everything sucks. I was just like spiraling out of control with this essay on the reason you should study the past. But there was some like decent ideas and building blocks within that first. You, I, I called it like the, the, not even the first draft. It was like the 0.5 draft. There were some interesting ideas in there. And so I was like thinking about it and I, I came back to it at night because I was writing in the morning. I came back to it at night on my computer, my desktop. I was looking at it, I was thinking about it, and I was trying to kind of fix it. And then I was like, you know, I just need to do away with this point, point 0.5 draft. And I should have figured out exactly like how to take everything I'm saying there. Because there were some interesting ideas and points that I wanted to put into the essay. But I knew that trying to like shape that 0.5 draft into something was going to be a nightmare. And so what I did instead was I just tried to figure out what's like the actual flow of what are the points I'm trying to make within this essay. And I took the time and I laid, I mean, my notion, I laid out like the eight points that were kind of not really like, I guess I just kind of wrote the, the idea of each paragraph. And I was like, that is the purpose. That's what this essay is about. And then I would just kind of go down the line and I would write, a, write the paragraph about each, each, I'd write it that I'd written on the point I was making with each one, how they kind of flowed together. I just laid out the, the structure of the interview based off of the ideas I'd kind of cobbled together in that 0.5 draft. And once I had that flow together, I rewrote the essay. And then I took the first draft and I looked at the 0.5 draft and I took some interesting lines or points and I kind of put them into that first draft. And then once I got like halfway through the first draft, like the real first draft, I was like, oh, I can see it now. I can see it now. I started to get excited because I knew the essay was there. I knew it was coming together. I knew this was actually going to get done. Because the day before I'd been in a place where I was like, this is never going to get done. This doesn't make any sense. This is terrible. And then the next day I was like, oh, I can see it. I can see, you know, like I, I understood where I was going. Now I had direction. I had a, I had a purpose with this essay and I got it done in like two days. Once I had like three days, once I had the, like the outline of this essay. And I feel like every time I write an essay, the idea and how I like the, it's not formulaic, which I used to be like, I need to come up with the best way to like, just to turn these essays out. But I think part of the process, part of the essay experience for me is almost every time and I try to fight it and I try to come up with ways around it. And I just don't think that's possible. But every single time I'm writing an essay, there's a period where I'm just banging my head against a wall, hoping something pops into it. And it sucks. And every time I'm like, why do I do this? This is not fun. I'm like subjecting myself to this agonizing experience every single time. But then at some point it clicks. At some point I start to realize the direction. At some point it starts to come together and I get excited again. I'm like, oh, this is why I do this. I chase this feeling of like, oh, it's coming together now. I see, I see it. I've finally chiseled it away. And I think for me, like sometimes the creative process, and sometimes I forget that like there is a level of creative process that I do with the podcast. Like sometimes I sit here and I go, 
I need to be writing screenplays again, which is just something I enjoy doing. Cause like I need my own form of art, but like the essays are a form of art. These podcasts are a form of art in a sense, but especially the essays. The essays like have a true creative process with the essays. And sometimes to me, it's like the creative process is just sitting in the chair, being in the environment of trying to create the thing. Sometimes you just need to do that, right? Like part of the creative process is just being there and sitting in the room until it clicks. Sometimes you're walking and it clicks. Sometimes you're doing the dishes or you're showering and the idea hits you. But sometimes for me, at least I find I just have to kind of be in there. I have to go through the agonizing part to get to the part where it all makes sense. I have to fight for the essay a little bit. And I definitely fought for one day at least. And it's like, it was a long agonizing, it was a day. And I was like, it's one day wasn't more than enough for me. But ultimately I, I found the direction on this idea of the, not the idea. Like I found a way to present the idea of the importance of setting the past, which isn't just so you can pick up where they left off. There were some other ideas and important reasons why you should be studying the past. And really what this essay evolved into was an exploration of originality as an artist and how to make your ideas original. And that's one thing I also noticed with my essays, especially with this one. Like this was an essay inspired by Nicolas Deschardins about Salvador Dali. And there was some other influences from my interview with Christopher Heath Brown that were coming into this essay. But when the final product of the essay has nothing to do with any of those people, I don't mention Dali. I don't mention Nicolas. I don't mention Chris. It's completely removed from those guys, but it was inspired by this work I've done on Salvador Dali. So even this is like technically a Salvador Dali essay, the essay itself really has nothing to do with Dali. It was just inspired by things I learned in this process of studying Dali and interviewing the experts. And so I'm really excited for you to hear it. And this is why, and this really is like an important way to crystallize the thesis of Artwell. Like we're studying the past with the show and this is why that's so important. As an artist, your goal is to create something unique. With that aim, it might seem logical to discard the past, to remove all external sources and create something without influence. But as the saying goes, if you do not study the past, you are doomed to repeat it. Applied to art, if you don't know what's come before, odds are you'll end up making something we've already seen. So instead of trying to make something brand new, invert the problem and avoid recreating what you know has come before. If you can do that, odds are you'll end up making something we've never seen. The reason we see a lot of material we've seen before, you know, kind of like cliche stuff, is because they're not aware of what's been done before. So part of your education as a writer is really to know what's been done before. So you really got to be very knowledgeable about, you have to be kind of be a geek about this, about knowing all the movies that have been done before, and all the TV that's been done before, and all the comic books that have been done before, so that you know when you create something, you try to avoid that and come up with something unique. Great art follows rules defined by great art of the past. No matter your medium, whether it be storytelling with the hero's journey, music with the rule of three, or design with the golden ratio, there are certain principles and structures you should adhere to. When you tell an artist that they have to follow rules, they have a tendency to writhe and scream like a vampire caught in the sunlight. But the truth is that constraints do not hamper creativity. They foster it because great art also breaks the rules. You showcase your creativity not by creating without structure, but by doing something new within the confines of a familiar one. But the catch is you can't just break the rules at random. You have to do it with intent and purpose. 
In order to do that, you have to learn the rules that you know when and why you're breaking them. When it when it's there, it clicks. It's like, to give you an example, because it sounds reductive, right? It sounds like, oh, well, every story can't be the same, because that would be a very violent reduction of, of what you see to be a very vibrant world. But to give you some context, like every person that you've ever met has a consistent structure of a face, two eyes, a nose, and a mouth. And that consistency in the structure is what allows for expression. You've met 10,000 people in your life. You don't walk up to the 10,000th person you've met and go, you know what? I'm getting really bored of this facial construction that you're using here. Like, you just don't do that. It, it, it's a prerequisite for communication and for value expression. Those people that, that understand that will be able to make, will be able to, to harness that structure to express something meaningful. And ultimately, you can look at The Matrix, Lord of the Rings, Shawshank Redemption, Die Hard, um, Jerry Maguire. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. They all follow that pattern. And when they follow, it just clicks and we resonate with it. The truth is all the rules are is audience expectations. We've been telling stories for thousands of years. And over time, we've come to a societally accepted way for how those stories are told. As a matter of fact, proper story structure is more human nature than it is theory. Story structure wasn't invented by a professor in a classroom or by a screenwriter at a keyboard. It was discovered by a cultural anthropologist named Joseph Campbell. Joseph worked in comparative mythology. His job was to study and compare great myths and creation stories throughout history. And over time, he started to notice that regardless of time, place, or culture, all of these myths followed a similar narrative structure, which he named the monomyth, which is better known today as the hero's journey or the story circle. What this pattern shows us is that as human beings encoded into our subconscious is how a great story is told. Your audience might not be able to articulate the monomyth, but they'll feel on a subconscious level when something deviates from the structure they're used to. Keep in mind, next time you want to break that structure, you're moving away from a storytelling method that has been accepted for millennia. Following this structure will not box you in creatively. There are infinite permutations for how it can manifest. Your job as an artist is not to find a way to create a new hero's journey. It's to take the existing hero's journey and use it in a way nobody has ever seen before. The key is to give the audience something new in a context they're familiar with. The thing with people is that deep down, they inherently hate change. They want something new, but not so new that it makes them uncomfortable. Therefore, when you present people with something that completely breaks the structure they're used to, something they have no reference for, they'll reject it. This is why you want to study the rules before you break them, because you want to do so in such a way that doesn't completely break the structure. By doing this, you can subvert audience expectations without straying too far from their comfort zone. The issue in the arts today is not enough people are studying the past, they're just imitating the present. Instead of taking inspiration from what has come before and creating something new with it, People are just copying what's working right now. Studying the past gives you a historical lens to look through and see what has always worked instead of what's just working in the current moment. It's better to learn timeless principles that will allow you to adapt as things change as opposed to getting really good at a fleeting trend. You have to live with your art forever. Stop trying to only make it for right now. Everybody today, if you put on uh, like alternative radio, the guitars sound exactly the same. And, you know, it's like, it's got to do with the lack of imagination that we're going through right now in certain areas of music. And kids think that they're supposed to copy things on television or on the internet, and that's how they're going to get successful. Well, the best way to be successful is to have it influence you or make up your own thing. 
There's a misconception that studying the past is no longer applicable because the internet has changed things. While it's absolutely true that the internet has changed things, each digital medium, whether it be YouTube videos, podcasts, or blogs, all have a predecessor in the analog world. And within that analog world are relevant and valuable lessons you can bring into the digital world. When you study the past, you're not trying to recreate it, you're trying to build upon it. You don't want to start from square one. You want to figure out where those who came before you left off and start from there. You want to take all of the tools that you have at your disposal that previous generations didn't have and use them to take the next step and evolve the medium. You're not picking up the torch and walking back down a path that was already charted. You're picking up the torch and blazing a new trail. Let's be real though. There's going to be some wandering around in the darkness until you can find the torch. In order to make great art yourself, you have to understand what it takes to make great art. You'll learn that by mimicking the work of people who inspire you. This isn't the same thing as copying what's popular. It's imitating it of admiration and not envy. As you continue to grow as an artist, you'll start to combine your inspirations to create something unique. It will become even harder for people to pinpoint who you're referencing because it won't just be one person. Eventually, you'll get to a place where you start having your own ideas and through studying your favorite artists will have built up a skill set and understanding of how to bring those ideas to life. When you start out, your shit's going to sound like a combination of your five favorite people. Then you start to get better. Then you start to learn your own thing. Not everybody pops out of nowhere just completely original. Not everybody in here is going to just day one make something that sounds like nothing else. With no reference point. You sound stupid holding yourself to the standard of the first thing I make needs to be revolutionary. You have to understand this. No chord change is unplayed. <laughs> like no sequence of notes has never been done before. You're not about to invent a rhythm today or a polyrhythm that's going to blow the world's mind and they're going to say, oh my God, no one's ever combined rhythms or notes this way. It's not going to happen like that. The way it's going to happen is your story the context to who you are, where you're from, how you make music, all these different things. That's what makes it new. That's what makes it interesting. You've got to start somewhere. You've got to be able to learn how to make beats that sound like beats you like to get to a place where you can make beats that sound like something you haven't even thought of yet. But how new and original can something be if it's inspired by previous work? The truth of the matter is there's no such thing as original. You don't live in a vacuum. You've come into contact with art throughout your entire life and it will influence you both consciously and subconsciously. And that's okay. It doesn't make you any less talented or creative. Quentin Tarantino was one of the greatest living directors, and each of his films is a love letter to cinema. They're filled with references and homages to different movies, scenes, and genres. But he takes all of these influences and blends them together to create something brand new. That's the trick with influences. It's not to avoid them. It's to hide them so well that nobody even knows they're there break the things that inspire you and, and mix them up until they're no longer recognizable. And then you've made something new. Because that's all, that's all creativity is. Like we're, all we're ever doing is taking inspiration and either breaking it or bending it or blending it with something other, something other than what the original inspiration was. You cannot create something new. It's just, it's metaphysically not possible. No one creates new stuff. They just reimagine and recycle and reinvent. So, just don't make, don't make your inspiration too visible. Like great art, the past shows but doesn't tell. It will show you its work before, but it won't tell you what to make now. It will show you what people expect, but it won't tell you how to surprise them. And it will show you where others left off, but it won't tell you what comes next. That's for you to decide.
My favorite part about that essay, which is not something you'll necessarily realize when you read it or listen to it, is that it demonstrates how to hide your influences. Like I mentioned right before I played that, that essay was inspired by Nicolas Deschamps, Salvador Dali, and Christopher Heath Brown. When you listened to that, you didn't probably pick up on that. You didn't see anywhere in that essay where Nicolas had influence, where Dali had influence, or where Christopher Heath Brown had influence. And that's the trick, as I was able to hide my influences, I was able to bend and break and blend it all to the point where you couldn't even tell that those were the influences of that essay. And that's my favorite part. And that's not necessarily something that most people will pick up on when reading that. But sometimes that's the point, is you want to leave those things there to be discovered. And I guess in that case, it's probably something you never will discover unless you're listening to this podcast right now. So I guess that could be our own little secret, a little revelation or a little revealing of the deeper purpose of that essay was to also hide my references so well. And I debated at one point writing that in there, of being like, case in point, like, da, 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 like how to hide your influences. But I felt like that took away from it and that kind of almost like showed the magic trick, how to do the magic trick a little bit too much and would like lose some of the impact of the essay. So I ended up not including that piece here, but I wanted to include it here and share that with you. And that's just my favorite part is the fact that in this essay where a core thing is that you should hide your influences, I hid my influences in the essay. It's just one of those deeper meaning, deeper purpose things of essays that, again, most people will not get, obviously, which is kind of the intent, um, but I wanted to share that here with you. And another thing too, when I look back on the totality of this season, and especially those two essays, is like, I don't think I realized in the moment the impact Nicolas Deschamps had on me when we wrapped that interview. You know, like those two essays were heavily inspired by him. They're things I took away from interviewing him. And so I want to give a, a, a bit of appreciation and gratitude to Nicolas for coming on the podcast. He's the first person who agreed to come on Arwell after the rebrand. The show was originally called the Jacob Kelly interview series for like five episodes until I decided to commit to Arwell. But Nicolas was the first person who agreed to come on this season on Salvador Dali. He was the first interview we did for the season on Salvador Dali. And my main takeaway when I originally wrapped up recording with him was the fact that we covered new ground. Like we didn't go over everything that I talked about already in the Dolly Profile episode. So it's a really good, like the interview overall, I was really happy with it. I was happy with the direction we took, but I don't think I'd realize in the moment like these, especially like this idea on, I mean, I like, I remember in the moment like, oh, that's a good way of looking at the paranoid critical method or, oh, that's why you're supposed to study the past. But those two, two ideas, I wasn't necessarily... I don't think I realized how long they'd stuck with me and the impact that they'd had. And so again, I want to give a special shout out and thank you to Nicola Deschamps for coming on the podcast. Because really when we wrapped, like the biggest thing for me when we finished recording was like this reinterpretation of Dolly's career and why Dolly focused on these spiritual paintings and Dolly's attempts to create a second renaissance. But I hadn't fully, again, taken in the impact that that interview had. But even though that, that section on reinterpreting the second half of Dolly's career, I thought was so interesting when I was sitting down trying to figure out what I was going to do for this cut down version of this interview, because I knew it wasn't going to be the paranoia critical method one, because it was too short and two, because it became a core part of my essay on crazy versus genius is I was trying to think of what is the angle for this, for, for this Nicola Deschamps video. And eventually I was like, Oh, I should just do it on this, these spiritual paintings and the importance of Dolly's spiritual paintings and what, what he was trying to say with them. And it was when I was writing this, I made some connections between his spiritual paintings and the Renaissance. It was like Nicola obviously kind of like alluded to and pointed to, 
Um, but there were some some realizations I had putting this video together that I went, oh, oh, it's like, that's the feeling I chase when I'm writing something. It's like, oh, that's why that means, or that's what this means. And like when I come up with like a bar or something like that, and I just think this this video really kind of like brought, to, like crystallized Dali's, the importance of Dali's religious paintings and what he was trying to do and why he was choosing religious paintings and why the Renaissance was so important to him. It was in this video that really kind of crystallized all of those things for me. And so this next video is a cut down version of my interview with Nicolas Deschamps, and it is a reinterpretation of the second half of Salvador Dali's career. This is Nicolas Deschamps. His father was one of Salvador Dali's closest friends from the 1950s until his passing in 1989. Growing up, Nicolas would spend summers in Spain with Dali and on a few occasions would play in his studio as a child. Today, he is the world's leading Salvador Dali expert. When Sotheby's needs to verify a Dali painting, this is who they call. And I was lucky enough to sit down with him for over an hour to do an interview. And I asked him about Dali's legacy. And what he said surprised me. The, the legacy, I would say for me, the legacy is the search of spirituality and faith. The, his main quest is a, is a spiritual quest for the faith. So he was very afraid about death and looking to acquire faith it's to attend serenity. And when he's talking about spirituality, he's not necessarily talking about religion. Nicolas said one of the most misunderstood things about Dali is that when he uses some mama of the Bible or you recycle a painting uh, linked to the Bible from the Renaissance, then the people are like, no, no, no. But it's not, it, it, it is not because he's, uh, he's a Catholic, it is because it's, uh, it's a moment that depicts, you know, a, a strong uh, text or a strong happening in the, in the Bible. It, maybe if he, if he was born in, uh, I don't know, in Lebanon or whatever, it would have been the Koran. But he's born in, the, in uh, Spain, so it's the, 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 the roots are the, the, the Catholic. The good question would have if he, if he had born in a Jewish family. One day I had a long uh, discussion with a Jewish friend of mine, and we were discussing about the science and the religion. And he said in the Jew religion, never you try to mix the two. We know that it's two different uh, things, and never we try to, to connect or to study one versus the other or whatever, which is not the, the, the case in the Christianity. Why? Because Christianity is bicephal. You have the, the, the power on earth and you have the spiritual power. The interesting thing with Dali is that he balanced these worlds of spirituality and science. While he was focused on spirituality, he also studied physics, mathematics, and psychology. And balancing these two things is always a challenge to, to, uh, to merge science and spirituality. Because <laughs> Everybody wants to have the proof of the existence of God. But Dali's goal with his imagery wasn't to give you proof of the existence of God, but rather to make you challenge your own beliefs and to make you interrogate your subconscious. The, the thing is that you, you, can, you can say he's crazy, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But the way he was painting was to ensure that the people will, even if they don't agree with him, they can say, wow, the painting are beautiful like the, the great master of the Renaissance. You know? And the Renaissance was important to Dali not only for what it meant to him as an artist, but also because if you look at the painting of the Renaissance, it's very linked to spirituality. When the bomb atomic happened, then Dali was convinced 
that there will be a, a, a renaissance, a second renaissance. But the world was at turn after Second World War. The world have, 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 have turned completely uh, materialist. It was alone for, for the quest of spirituality. A big reason Dali's spirituality is misunderstood is because for a long time, the second half of his career was disregarded by the art community. Dali was in the Surrealist in 29. Then he was ejected in 34. But they, they, they knew that he was so powerful that more or less he was still connected. But at the end, 39-40, he left to US. And then all his painting from the very surrealist period doesn't have an uh, angel represented, doesn't have uh, biblical uh, representation. And then in 39-40, he turns to that. But the, the second part of his creation after 40 wasn't that popular in the classical art world. It, it was rediscovered recently, like the 20, the 20 uh, last year. I was curious what has led to this newfound appreciation for the second half of Dali's career and for his spiritual works. And Nicolas believes it's because of the evolution of the society. While people are still materialistic, there's a growing push towards spirituality. And again, that's not to say people are becoming more and more religious. Oxford Dictionary defines spirituality as the quality of being concerned with the human spirit or soul as opposed to material or physical things. So Dali's spiritual paintings were less about preaching religion and more so his response to a materialistic society. Two years ago, I I was in Shanghai, so I went to the area where you have all the painting, the gallery and things like that. Wow. And then I was at a dinner and they were a young Chinese painter. And I said, but I think you have to rediscover your, your country. You have to go back to your roots, to your civilization, because China during the, the Cultural Revolution, I think the period was like five or six years, everything had been washed. That was the, the discussion. One can say, well, but he recycled the past. It's not exactly that. But it's understandable because the guys say, no, now we want to forget the past and we want to make new stuff. You say, okay, but you will see, it's not strong enough. And if you look to Dali, he was always looking in the great master and the past. And the reason Dali studied these great masters of the Renaissance is they were using spirituality as a way to move society from the Middle Ages towards modernity. And Dali was doing his best to push society away from materialism and towards something greater. And that's the reason he studied these great Renaissance painters, because if you integrate the old work of the great master or even before, it's because you continue the work the message. This is why as an artist it's important to study the past. It's not so that you can recreate what those who came before you did, it's so that you can pick up where they left off and continue the mission. This doesn't mean you take the same path, it means you pick up where they left off and blaze a new trail. This doesn't mean you're going to complete the mission. In Dali's case, I think in the 70s, he gave up. He continued his job to see what was going on around him, the new discovery, and blah, blah, blah. But then he was like, I'm tired because I didn't uh, create a movement of renaissance or uh, look, the, the, the people are too materialist. But that doesn't mean his work was in vain. The goal of art is to make a ripple effect across generations. And so even though Dali himself didn't create a second renaissance, his work can still impact someone who can pick up the torch and continue his mission, which really was a continuation of the mission of the great masters of the renaissance. 
One thing I didn't realize at first was that my first guest and second guest past had actually crossed previously, and I'd seen them both in the same documentary, and I hadn't even realized because I watched it so early in the process. But I watched this documentary about Jack Bond, who is the only living director to have ever made a film with Salvador Dali. And they made a documentary with him back in 2010 about Dali's impact on him and the making of Dali in New York, and they did it with him going to Sweden for this exhibition on Dali. And there's a point in that documentary where he's having kind of like a roundtable conversation with a few Dali experts, and one of them is Nicola. And it wasn't until I booked Jack Bond for the podcast that I rewatched that documentary and realized that him and Nicola were in it together. And I thought that was a fun connection point between between guests on the podcast. And Christopher Heath Brown, the third guest on the show, also knows Nicola. So all of our guests are connected in some way, shape, or form. But Jack Bond, I was so excited to get Jack on the podcast. You know, he's the first, I think he's the first director I've ever interviewed. And he's 86 years of age. And so I appreciate the fact that he took the time to do so. And I also appreciate one of one final shout out. I've given her a couple of shout outs over the course of the season, but to Mary Rose from Sunrise Pictures, who helped coordinate this interview with Jack. Uh, we went back and forth on Twitter and then over email to finally make this episode happen. So I, I thank her again for that. Uh, but Jack's just the greatest. You know, I I think I left this in at the end of the interview where he invites me to his place to have wine together next time I'm in London, which if that does happen, I if I am in London, I will take him up on that offer. Um, but he also, at the beginning of every interview, I tell my guests that swearing is allowed, but by no means is it mandatory. And I think Jack said something along the lines of like, well, that's good to fucking know. Um, and so he was just great. We got some good stories in there. He's just a fascinating guy um, with so many stories to tell. And obviously like, not every single detail is super fresh. He's 86 years of age after all. Um, but we still got some really cool stories out of him. And those are kind of what I decided to focus on for this cut down version of his interview is yes, the reason I had him on this podcast was because he's the only director to have made a film with Salvador Dali. And I try to like figure like how to explain this properly. Cause it's like Dali made and Shane Andalou with Louis Bunel. So it's like, how is Jack the only director to have made a film with Dali? And how like the distinction I look at is like Dali made and Shane Andalou. Dali didn't make Dali in New York. Dali was in Dali in New York. And so that's the distinction. Jack's the only living director to have gotten Salvador Dali in a film that Dali himself wasn't making. And so that was the reason I had uh, Jack on the podcast. And he's, he's, I was just the only guest, but he's not. Two of the three guests this season actually met Dali, which is quite, quite cool when you think about it, because those people are becoming fewer and fewer. Um, so Jack knew Dali. He had some fun Dali stories, which we incorporated a little bit into the later part of this video, as you're going to hear. But the main focus I want to talk about was the angle that I liked the best was Jack being the world's most irresponsible director for a couple interesting situations he found himself in in the filming of the movie. I actually think he was filming it. I think it was being directed by Jane Arden. He was producing it. But on the creation of the film, The Other Side of Underneath, Jack found himself in some interesting situations that I'm not going to spoil for you here. I'm just going to let Jack tell you himself. I'd like to introduce you to the most irresponsible director on God's earth. Meet Jack Bond. In a career spanning over six decades, he has come into contact and worked with the likes of Salvador Dali, Andy Warnhall, Jane Arden, Philip Saville, The Pet Shop Boys, 
and more. Whether you look at his life as a string of many exciting adventures or one long adventure, at 86 years of age, Jack certainly has a story or two to tell. Like the time when he was working on the film The Other Side of Underneath and they decided they just needed to have a bath in the film. I didn't know where to get a bath. Nobody had one. But then I remembered Harrods, the shop, which prides itself on their being able to supply virtually anything. So I rang Harrods and yes, they had a bear. And I bought it sight unseen over the phone and gave them an address to deliver it where I crewed up. The bear arrived in a big wooden crate with slats on either side and on the roof, a big strong box with a bear in it. We came peering in at this thing and I'd look at it. The claws would come out, you know. I thought, well, we can't just sit here. We've got to let this poor creature out. Stuck in a cage, probably fed up and want something to eat or drink. So we undid the cage and we were all gathered around, me and the entire crew. And it came out. And boy, did it come out. We were all attacked by this bear. Finally, we got control of the bear and uh, realized a lot of us had been bitten by it. Just one of those things you run into where you're making probes and end up with a bear you don't know what to do with. Another issue you can run into when making a film is losing a bus full of asylum patients. Uh, yes, I'm afraid that's true. That's part of the same story, I think, because the script did call for some rather disturbed people. Not violently disturbed, but disturbed. And so it was agreed the hospital would, would supply us with the patients. And I think we had 50, and they were all delivered. And then the people that brought them promptly drove away. So I'm lumbered now with a lot of rather crazy, but delightfully crazy, I thought, the wonderful smiles, and they realized they were free. They were out of the asylum. I thought, well, well all we've got to do is feed them. I can calm the whole situation down. So we've got food. People were very pleased with that. But before long, they gone. God knows where. They'd all disappeared, run off into the woods and the forests, and they were no longer my captives. <laughs> It's slightly embarrassing, so... At this point, Jack had to go back to the asylum and explain to the matron the situation. He accidentally misplaced 50 of her patients, and it was at this moment that she called him the most irresponsible man on the face of Bonzo. I was. Don't worry, Jack assured her. He might be irresponsible, but he had a plan. So we're just going to lay food and drink and see if we can attract them back. But it took a very long time. It took about a week and a half to do this. But we got them all back. Rachel congratulated me on getting them all back. Unhurt. No, not one person had a misfortune or was cut or hurt or in any way damaged. So we scored. <laughs> you might be wondering, why not just use actors? Did it have to be a real bear? And for Jack, it did. Because his filmmaking philosophy was... No matter what, get it for real. And while the lesson here isn't that you should find a way to incorporate a dangerous wild animal into your next film, there is something to be said for doing it for real, that in a world of green screens and special effects, you still can't quite beat the real thing. That's the truest reward, is to shoot something that matters. And if, if, you, if you can do that, you've got all that can be expected. I asked Jack about what he thought when he looked back at his body of work, and I've been thinking about his answer ever since. 
I wish I'd made some more. I think I could have made more for It's not like the opportunities weren't there, but I was easily distracted. For example, as soon as I got quite a lot of money, I bought a big boat and went off on that. I was fascinated by very, very fast motorcycles and cars. My takeaway from that is that despite getting the money, fame, success, and all the things that come with it, all Jack wants now is to make another movie, to take another swing. And I've been thinking about it ever since because people so often become focused on the rewards, but the truth of the matter is that the process itself is the reward. The reason you started making things in the first place was for the love of making the thing itself, and you never want to lose sight of that. It's the reason that at 86 years old, Jack is still wanting to make a new picture now. You might be thinking, he's 86 years old, that's impossible. But impossible isn't a word in Jack's vocabulary. In 1965, he wanted to make a film with Salvador Dali, and he was told that that was going to be impossible too. It wasn't that um, Dali would never make a film with me. According to our reading of it, he, would, he just wasn't prepared to make a film period with anybody. So I thought, well, um, we'll change that. And he did. Dolly agreed to make a documentary with Jack called Dolly in New York, which went on to become the only documentary ever made with Salvador Dolly. So you might be wondering, how did Jack convince him? Dolly suddenly popped the question. What kind of a film did I have in mind? He asked. Well, I'd rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed exactly what I was going to say to him, down to my interest in the dream world, my profound affection for his work. But suddenly it all went wrong, and I don't know why. I just blurted it out. Dali, I said, my film will almost certainly destroy the comfortable universe you inhabit. That is an outrage, he said. I intend to bring a weightless flying camera, I said, that can penetrate all of your dreams. No, 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 he said, I don't want that. I want a massive, heaviest camera that can be found in Hollywood, and I want it bolted to the floor. No, 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 I said, I don't want the bolted camera approach. You can shoot with your weightless flying camera if I can have five swans exploding in slow motion, spilling their entrails all over the screen. Sounds good, I said, I like that. The swans will be followed by 2,000 priests on bicycles. Or I said, look, I have no affection for priests in any shape or form, and I certainly don't want to be dealing with 2,000 priests on bicycles. All right, he said. If you supply me with a seven-foot plaster cast of Michelangelo's statue of David. Done, I said. The film was on. What was it about this interaction that made Dali say yes? Later on the shoot, he told Jackie, he agreed to let me have all this freedom to make a film with me because he had noticed that I was not particularly intelligent. That is God's truth. He really did say that. I decided to work with you because I noticed you were not particularly intelligent. If I were to ever have a tombstone, I want that on it. The most irresponsible man on God's earth, not particularly intelligent. Jack certainly has a way of earning himself a good reputation. And we certainly can't forget drug crazy misfit. In a review to separation, somebody had written, definitely the work of a drug-crazed misfit. At the end of the day, this irresponsible, unintelligent misfit has refused to take no for an answer. 
He made films his way and lived life on his own terms. And if you could talk to him now, he'd tell you that anything goes. If she wanted, get it. If you want to do it, do it. And there's no reason or excuse for not doing it. For my last interview of the season with Christopher Heath Brown, I made a similar decision when cutting it down that I did with Jax is I decided to not really focus on Salvador Dali in it. And the reason I had Chris on the podcast was because he was the co- or he is the co-author of the Dolly Legacy. And so I thought it would be great to have him on the podcast. We can talk about Dolly's legacy and Dolly's influences, which is a lot about what their book was about. But I also knew at the same time that Chris is an expert on Leonardo da Vinci. He's written four books on da Vinci. He's produced four separate documentaries and movies on da Vinci. And so I knew Da Vinci was going to come up. He also does come up in the Dolly book anyway. So we probably talk about Dolly or Da Vinci's influence on Dolly in this interview. And that's kind of what I was prepared for. But I was not prepared for some of the Da Vinci things that Chris brought up on the podcast, which I thought were really interesting. He's doing some like real life Indiana Jones Da Vinci code stuff where he's using the imagery in Da Vinci's paintings to find maps and clues that he thinks leads to the Ark of the Covenant. And so when I was cutting it down, especially for a YouTube context, I thought the hook of that, of this guy is using Da Vinci's paintings to find the Ark of the Covenant, was so strong that I I wanted to use that as opposed to Da Vinci's influence on Dali. I also found that I could tell the narrative and tell the story a little bit better with this angle as opposed to one about Dali. So I know that this is our season on Salvador Dali, but we're concluding this season finale with a section of an interview about Leonardo da Vinci and how Chris is using da Vinci's paintings to try and find the Ark of the Covenant. Leonardo da Vinci has painted some of the most amazing pictures ever, but did you know that if he painted something, he only painted what he actually physically saw. So when he painted Virgin of the Rocks, we've been able to locate north of Milan, north of Lecco, an exact location from where the inspiration of Virgin of the Rocks came from. This is Christopher Heath Brown, a prominent art collector and expert on Leonardo da Vinci. This past summer, he went over to Italy to look for a specific cave from one of Leonardo da Vinci's paintings. But this wasn't just for fun. This was because we believed we had a map to where the Ark of the Covenant would be. The Ark of the Covenant is one of the most important religious artifacts ever, also known as the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of God. It's a wooden chest covered in pure gold. And inside of it are the Ten Commandment tablets. Or it is a jar of mana, which is bread that fell from the sky, and it's Moses' staff, it's called Aaron's rod. It's also God's holy throne on the earth. People have been searching for the Ark of the Covenant for centuries, but as far as we know, it hasn't been seen since 500 years before Christ. And Chris thinks he may have found its resting place in a cave in the mountains north of Milan. He doesn't just think the Ark of the Covenant is there for no reason. We have reasons to know that da Vinci hid these things in his work. What kinds of things did da Vinci hide in his work? Before we get to that, let's talk about how Chris got into this in the first place. Dan Brown did the same thing with the da Vinci Code. I, even though he said this is fiction, he's, he wanted us to look at art diff- deeper. That made me do this. That's what made me do all the things I've done because I wanted, you know, I'm Christian. And Dan Brown was being blasphemous, saying that Mary Magdalene is pregnant with Christ's child. I wanted to prove him wrong. Well, it's not written in our books yet, but I have proved him wrong. And again, he didn't have to be right because he wrote fiction, right? But I wanted to prove that his premise that even though it's fiction, that that would be Mary Magdalene to the right hand of Christ. That's not who it was. 
And so, inspired by Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code, Chris set out to prove him wrong and find the true meaning behind Da Vinci's paintings. But that's easier said than done, because what most people don't realize is Einstein's IQ was like 180. But they say Da Vinci's IQ was in the 220s. I think Da Vinci is probably one of the most brilliant human beings that has, has ever lived. I mean, he, is, he, he actually designed lots of research, lots of things like flying machines, tanks. They built his machines. And it, what's really cool is like his tank... They built it and it wouldn't even work. And it's because they put three errors in it that he only he knew because he was afraid if somebody stole it, they would build it and then use it against them. When you think of something, you gotta think, well, how did Da Vinci think about this? So you gotta think about it in three or four ways. You just can't think of it the right way because he wrote backwards, he did things to kind of protect his work, right? Is the work supposed to be this way or is it in mirror? So you always gotta be thinking that too, right? So, so you gotta be always thinking like in different ways in order to be like, Da Vinci, but being a 220 IQ, he could just rotate and see things that you and I can't even imagine. I mean, a guy of an IQ of 220, I mean, it's not like just getting two people with 180 IQ and it's the same. It's like an astronomical human being that's able to use your brain in a way we've never done it. Well, in the process of analyzing these images, Chris started finding clues by manipulating Da Vinci's images using geometry, whether that be by mirroring them, layering them on top of one another, or squeezing all the imagery together into a tighter frame. And it was in doing so that he discovered a bigger story is being told. If you take The Last Supper, it was stretched out. And if you pull it all in and you consolidate it, that leaning Virgin Mary and John, if you squeeze it in, is now on the left shoulder of Christ. And now you got Judas with his hand like this and over Christ's throat, right? Of course, the purpose of painting The Last Supper was to, to denote the moment of time that Judas was going to betray Christ. And he was going to tell all the apostles, this is the moment you're going to be betrayed. But you also had that doubting Thomas, and he, he goes from being on the left side of Christ to the right side of Christ, and he's pointing in a window to where my friend owns property north of Milan that had that cave where we were going to look for the Ark of the Covenant. I know what you're thinking. How did the Ark of the Covenant get from Temple Mount in Jerusalem to Milan, Italy? Well, there's rumors that Templar Knights might have moved them out in medieval time. And why is this rumor extra important for our story today? Well, my friend owns this property. He's been in his family's name for like four or five hundred years. He has Templar knights in his family. He's got Templar seals. and He's got all these things. His father passed away when he was eight years old and he had a heart attack about 20 feet from this cave. Well, do you know what happens if you touch the Ark of the Covenant? You die. It's in the Bible. One person touched it when he thought it was going to tip over and he passed away and he died from a heart attack. So there's there just so many coincidental things that just, you know, so it just makes you really think, hey, do we really have something there? On top of that, we know Da Vinci was on the property because of his notebooks. He wrote about things he saw, the things we saw on his property. So we, I've been able to identify things in the paintings that make us believe that possibly the Ark of the Covenant could be on this property. And so this past summer, Chris ventured out to these mountains north of Milan and found the cave he was looking for. And did he find the Ark of the Covenant? No. But inside the cave were identifiers that were to, to Leonardo da Vinci. And what I mean by that is uh, he didn't sign his name on the cave, but there were these three dots that are in his paintings. Uh, one is the Mona Lisa, one is the Prada Mona Lisa, and another one is Salvador Mundi. And the crystal ball he's holding are these three dots. And on this wall in this cave were the three dots. That's his signature basically in the cave. But the cave had been filled in at the bottom and we weren't able to get to the top part of the cave because it wasn't safe. So our goal next summer is to go back in there and could we find something like the Ark of the Covenant? Possibly, yes. But for Chris, even just seeing those dots, he totally lost my breath. I mean, 
I, I, I you know, and I could, didn't, I couldn't really show a lot of excitement because the cave guides who had gone there to prepare us getting into the cave, they kind of knew we were going, but they didn't know what we were looking for, right? And again, we didn't want them stealing it either, right? If there was there. So I had to hide my surprise a little bit, but I almost lost my breath because I never in the world expected that to be there. But why would Da Vinci have hidden it? It was probably my same concern when I was worried about sharing this. Is in Revelations, it says, when the third temple mount is built, that the Ark of the Covenant will return, that will mark the beginning of the end of times. Well, I'm not the one that's in charge of the end of times. That's God. So I'm not going to be like, someone's not going to say I forced that if I find the Ark of the Covenant. Because to me, the counterbalance to that is, if there are people that are looking for proof of the Bible, and we find the Ark of the Covenant, and the ten people can see the Ten Commandment tablets, how many people will be saved into Christianity? Or Judaism, I mean, sure, you know, it's just part of the Jewish laws, you know, rules and laws, and I don't know what's in the Quran and some of these other things, but, you know, I know your one way to heaven is through Christ. I'm a Christian, I have to believe that. So, to me, the counterbalance of possibly starting the end of times, and I don't think Italy is going to, like, go and say, hey, take the Ark of the Covenant, right, anyway. So, again, that's not up to me, but... I do think as a researcher and, you know, whether I'm Lewis and Clark or Columbus or whomever, if I am on the same intellect level as Da Vinci and I'm able to, through trial and error, decipher that there might be something there and we find it, then I, I want to. Can you imagine what it would be like to find the Ark of the Covenant based on Leonardo da Vinci? I mean, that would put him into a whole new realm. This isn't the only thing Chris has noticed analyzing da Vinci's paintings. One of his other big takes is that the woman in the Mona Lisa painting is not. Lisa Giaconda, or Lisa Giaconda, or Lisa Giardini, who was a silk merchant's wife. He, she may have been the initial influence for what Mona Lisa would look like, but his Mona Lisa, which was painted later than 1503, it was painted probably in 1512 or 1513, was who da Vinci had painted the most. The Virgin Mary. And if you want to hear that, you're going to have to go and download the full interview with Chris. But this officially concludes the first season of Artwell. You know, this season has been months in the process. Truthfully, it actually started back in August, before Artwell even existed. Because for just around a year now, I've been studying these great artists but just taking what I learned and writing one or two essays, and that was it. So I was doing all the work I was doing for the podcast anyways, but I just wasn't doing the podcast piece of it. And so I'd actually been studying Dali since August because there was a Salvador Dali exhibit here in Toronto, and I wanted to go into it with the context of who Dali was and of his paintings. And eventually, in that period of time, I got a phone call from my friend Kay Ward, and she was like, yo, you have to do this type of podcast. I want to hear you do this type of podcast. And ultimately, if you listen to the Introducing Artwell episode, I was hesitant to the idea at first, but eventually I came around and Artwell was kind of born, I want to say around October. So it's been just over two months since committing to Artwell working on this season of the show, but it's been three, four months now, four months really, that I've been living with Salvador Dali doing all this work. So there's been a lot of, a lot of work that has gone into this season and I had this like post-season checklist of things to do between season one and two, which now is kind of a joke considering I'm into the pre-production on season two, very close to starting the production on it. I'm already doing a lot of research for season three. So there isn't even really going to be a post-season that happens. But on this post-season checklist that I have, there's a few things. Like one of them was like book a massage as like a gift to myself. 
Another one was just kind of like sit and think about ways to improve the show. I also want to print off, I made a few posters to promote this season on Twitter and I want to print off one of them and frame it as like another gift to myself for completing the season. But one of the things I had on this was to just take a moment and appreciate all the work that went into making this. I do this show by myself. I do all the research, all the pre-production, the production, the editing, promotion. I do the whole thing. And so there's a lot of work that goes into this because obviously it's the podcast and everything you've listened to on this season. And there's also the YouTube videos. This season of the show, there was five separate YouTube videos that had to be filmed, scripted, edited, designed the thumbnails, come up with the titles. On top of that, then there's the essay component where I actually have to physically write the essays. I have to go through, I do the transcript for every single podcast so I can take a section that goes on the newsletters. Like the volume of work that actually went into this over the last two months was pretty intense. And I'm very often, as is evident with the fact that I'm already working on season two and season three, that like I don't, I'm not very good at taking those moments. I'm very much the kind of person who struggles with not working and not being busy. And so I have a tendency to just fill my time with tasks and I can be very task oriented to get this done and I get this done and this and this and this. And so I literally put into my task list to like stop doing things to appreciate just everything that went into season one. And I'm kind of trying to do that now, but I will take actual time to do that. But now just reflecting on everything that's gone into this, now that we're doing the season finale, this recap episode, I also wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to this in whatever capacity that was, whether you were someone who listened to every single episode, if this is your first episode, if you've only listened to a couple, whatever your interaction with the season of Arwell is, thank you. Because like I just outlined, there's a lot of work that goes into doing this. And obviously the show didn't like come out the gate with a bang and like rise up the charts or anything, but I still just appreciate the fact that even the handful of people that did listen, listened. You know, I got, I've gotten some decent anecdotal feedback, so I do believe in this show. I do believe in what we're building here. You know, I've come to the conclusion that the life mission is to inspire people to do art well. And that's part of the reason where the name of the show came from. And so... This is a lifelong mission. And whether the podcast is a lifelong podcast or whatever it might be, the, the mission will stay the same. The tactics might change, but that's the mission. And this is the first iteration, the first tactic, the first step on this mission of inspiring people to do art well. And so the fact that you're here and you're supporting the show so early genuinely means the world to me. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for tuning in, for those who have messaged me with some anecdotal feedback on their thoughts and what they really liked, what they didn't like. Thank you because it's going to help me make the show better in the areas that people didn't like. It's going to help me double down in the areas of the show people did like. And if you have feedback and you haven't shared it with me with and you want to, please, you are more than welcome to message me. I'd love to hear what you thought about this season of the show. But for those, if you're still listening at this point, I feel like I can probably announce, reveal who season two is going to be. Most of the, if you're close with me, you know who that is already. But if you don't, um, if you haven't spoken to me about this yet, happy to announce that the second season of the show is going to be on the director james cameron as mentioned i'm already heads down working on this season the research is pretty much done i'm going to start the profile episode i've already got interviews scheduled the essays are written and done so this season is well underway and it's coming i'm hoping i'm aiming honestly but depending on when i can get the last couple interviews scheduled probably going to be a february beginning of february launch I don't think we're going to get anything up in January in terms of season two. I might try to schedule like a fun interview in between season one and two, just as like a piece of content, something that you can hear from me in the ensuing month, two months almost between seasons. 
Um, I'm hoping in the future that the gap between seasons isn't quite that long. I'm just learning things when it comes to scheduling different talent and stuff like that to be on the podcast. So there's going to be a bit of a break here between seasons one and two. But I'm very excited for the James Cameron season. We've got some pretty exciting guests coming on uh, that I'm excited to share with you. I'm not going to share anything right now because nothing's recorded. Not everything's officially booked yet. But we're having some pretty interesting conversations about getting some pretty interesting people on the show. So if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to Artwell to stay tuned for season two on James Cameron. Um, if you want even more from me, you can check out the YouTube channel, which is essentially, if you've listened this far, it is everything you just heard in video format. If you want to check out the newsletter, that's also linked down there. Um, you'll get the written versions of the essays, which for me, sometimes I do process information better when I'm reading, I feel like. So if you're someone like that, you can check out the newsletter as well. Uh, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this, just make sure you subscribe. And one last favor I'm going to ask you is just send this podcast to one person who you think would enjoy it. Because that to me is really how I want to grow the show. I don't want to grow the show by posting like a flashy clip on TikTok that goes super viral and get a bunch of people who kind of care and are kind of interested. I want to build a group of people that listen to this show who love it so much that they want to tell their friends who they think would love it too. And so if you could just send the show to one person who you think would like it, that would mean the world to me. But at the end of the day, I just appreciate you regardless for tuning in. So thank you for listening. This has been our well season one. And now go do your thing, whatever it is. Do it well.